Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. All right, welcome back to the podcast indeed. We are back, and this is the podcast where TLDR does not apply and the study of history is a way of life. For those of us who enjoy studying history, welcome back. Today we are actually going to get back into a long-form episode. This is the first one in a very long time. Uh, I told you that in the month of May, my schedule would begin to return back to some sense of normalcy, and here we are. Uh, It's not going to be 100% consistent at first. It might kind of ebb and flow a little bit, but this is uh, the beginning of the end for my chaotic schedule, allowing me to return back to the podcast and do some work. There might be some further revisions to the schedule coming in the not-so-distant future, however. Uh, More on that, you know, at a later time. I won't delve into that right now. I'm still working through some of that stuff. But it's uh, it's good to be back. And on this particular episode, we are going to begin to segue away from Mr. John Adams and his letters. And we are going to begin to move towards uh, Dr. Benjamin Franklin in this period of 1774 to 1775. And at this particular point in time, Dr. Franklin is... In London. That's basically where we start off at, is with uh, Dr. Franklin in London. He was there as a kind of um, representative of the colonies, for lack of a better way of putting it, although the colonies really had no formal representation in Parliament. Uh, Dr. Franklin was a real presence in, in, in England on behalf of the colonies because he was very well known. Uh, in Great Britain. Unlike a great many of the other founding fathers, he was he was known pretty much, he was known all over Europe as far as I know. And he was a very popular man, largely because of his scientific endeavors. He was of course a, a brilliant man, uh, very intelligent, very sharp, and one of the most uh, valuable people to have around during a, a time like this in the colonies, in the, uh, in the Americas. Uh, eventually was uh, returned back to America to be in Congress, and then eventually to France as uh, a sort of ambassador on behalf of the uh, the new United States. And of course, a lot of people uh, most commonly recognize Benjamin Franklin today for being on the $100 bill. But don't worry, by the time this podcast is through, uh, we will have a much greater insight into the, uh, the mind of Benjamin Franklin and what he was thinking and doing during this particular period of time in history and how valuable he was to the, uh, the American Revolution. So yes, uh, Mr. Adams is uh, going to take a break from being a guest on the podcast, and we are going to now welcome uh, Dr. Benjamin Franklin onto the podcast as our latest guest. But before we get to Dr. Franklin, the very first letter that we're going to cover is actually not from Dr. Franklin. It's from somebody writing to Dr. Franklin. And then after that, if we have time on this episode, we'll get into a letter that he wrote. Uh, If we don't have time on this episode, it will be bounced over to the next episode of the podcast. But without further delay, let's get into the letters to and from Dr. Benjamin Franklin right now. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this. Um, the uh, the letters uh, to and from Dr. Benjamin Franklin, I've been looking forward to this for some time. I have to have great patience, you know, sometimes as I do this podcast, because I, I, do st- I do come across letters from people that are outside of the range that I'm talking about at any particular time period in, in this podcast, and uh, I'd like to talk about those letters, but I have to save it for a future date. Same goes for Dr. Franklin. I've been, I've been waiting to, to go through the letters from uh, Benjamin Franklin for some time. So this first letter that we're going to talk about is a letter written to 
Benjamin Franklin from a Samuel Cooper, and it was written on August the 15th of 1774. And I quote, The act for blockading the town has been executed with the utmost rigor, and even beyond the rigor of this cruel act. End quote. And continuing on, quote, The people endure all with an astonishing calmness and resolution, supported and encouraged with the sympathy and good wishes of our brethren in the country and throughout the colonies. They have made our cause a common one. They appear ardent in it. Large and generous presence to the indigent and distressed inhabitants flow from all quarters. Our delegates with those of New Hampshire set out a few days ago for the Congress, which meets at Philadelphia. All eyes are turned toward that important assembly. Its decisions will come with great weight, and it should be recommended either a non-importation or a non-consumption of British goods. The recommendation would be almost universally adopted. End quote. So, you, you know from this letter, and obviously the time period that I mentioned, August of 74, we're going back in time from where we were. This is the trend, if you, have a, if you haven't noticed. When we went through the, the letters from George Washington, we started in 1774 and went to 75, and then we went to John Adams, 74 to 75, and now we're going back to Dr. Benjamin Franklin, 74 to 75. Now, why am I doing this? Because when I, when I set out to do this podcast, I had a couple of different ways that I could do it. I could do it in timeline fashion, and I could just run through, se- you know, start at 1774 and then just run my way all, run my way all the way through up until the 1800s, like, like a traditional podcast would do. But this podcast is not called the American Revolution, and it's not called the Revolutionary War, and it's not called the War in the Colonies, it's not called the British Civil War, or anything of the sort. It's called the Letters from Our Founding Fathers, and so that gave me my template. This this le- this this podcast is all about the letters, and I decided to break it up into not not a timeline fashion history of the Revolutionary War, but more blocks of letters written in specific time periods from each of the Founding Fathers for for to to keep a kind of context going for the time period. And some people might like that format, and some people might not, but. So, so in other words, we're gonna we're gonna stay in the 17th. And I I mentioned this before. We're gonna stay in the 1774 to 75 time period for quite a while, and then we're gonna move on to another time period, and we will stay there for quite a long time, and then we'll do that again and again and again until we gradually get to the end of this thing. And that's how we're gonna do it. It's gonna be quite a while before we move beyond 74 to 75. Not very long. I mean, it's it depends on your definition of a long period of time. You know, it's not gonna take us years to get out of 74 to 75, but it, it is gonna take months to get out of 74 to 75, just because of the the nature of this podcast. I only have time to do one long form episode every week, if that. And that again is because I have a full-time job, thank goodness, and because I have other responsibilities, and because there's very, just very little time to do this work. Um, this is again, I have no staff. Nobody helps me. I'm not a million dollar podcaster. I can't do this. Isn't my daily. In other words, this isn't my daily job. I don't get paid for this. So here we are. Um, but I, I know those of you who are patient individuals and just like the like the study of history, regardless of you know how we follow the timeline and all the rest of it. I know you'll get some. Uh, some enjoyment out of the podcast regardless. And it may be a maybe a little bit of a smaller audience because of it, because it's not going through, you know, giving you a blow-by-blow blow of the Revolutionary War in a timeline fashion, but that's okay. If I wanted to do a podcast like that, I suppose I could, but I just don't, I, I don't really want to. I wanted to focus on the letters. I wanted it to be all about the people uh, who wrote these letters, the letters that we do have in some volume. Uh, obviously, there's going to be a lot of people that we never get to just because I can't spend a huge amount of time in one one time period. In other words, I can't spend years in 74 to 75. 
but we will get to a lot of them. Anyway, so this letter begins talking about the state of things back in 1774 at the outset of what was going on in Boston during this period of time. Now, because we have talked a lot about this from George Washington and John Adams, especially John Adams, the reason why I spent so much time on John Adams during this time period is because the focus during this time period is in Boston and Massachusetts. And Mr. Adams and William Tudor and, and his friends were all very, very instructive in what was going on there. I'm not going to read a lot of letters that cover the same kind of thing from or to Benjamin Franklin, but I do want to start everything off with the same tone so you get a feel for, okay, we're back in 1774. We're talking again about the Intolerable Acts. This is the beginning of this thing. There's still some hope that things will be reconciled. You're going to hear that in this letter. You're going to hear it in the letter from Benjamin Franklin that I'm going to read to you either on this episode or the next one. And then we're going to gradually segue into um, that time period again where pretty much hope is lost. Uh, once we get to about the middle of 1775. So again, yeah, we will start off talking about the Intolerable Acts a little bit with Dr. Franklin, but we won't dwell too much on it. So don't worry, I'm not going to rehash all of the same ground with Dr. Franklin as we did with John Adams. I'll select out letters that cover some new stuff, and because Benjamin Franklin has a unique perspective as well. While John Adams was in Boston at the heart of this thing, and he really was, he was, him and William Tudor, and people like them, were really in the midst of this thing. Benjamin Franklin was a world away from it. He was in London. So we're going to get some very interesting perspective from Mr. Franklin about what thing, what was going on in London while the Intolerable Acts were becoming a bigger and bigger problem for the people of Massachusetts and the colonies generally. And in this letter, we get a, we get a pretty good picture of what was going on. Uh, he, ta- they, he talks about, quote, the act for blockading the town has been executed with the utmost rigor, end quote. So the town has been blockaded, talking about Boston. So so Benjamin Franklin is getting an update as to what's going on over there. He's been cut off largely from the news of what, what's going on, and now he's hearing it. And he's being reassured that the people are handling it as well as they possibly can under the circumstances. Quote, the people endure all with an astonishing calmness and resolution, end quote. You know, let that be a lesson to us all. You know, when hardship begins, staying cool, calm, and collected is a good thing. Not lazy, not cowardly, not incompetent, but cool, calm, and collected. There's a difference. There's plenty of people who are cowardly and lazy, you know, and, and won't, won't be pried away from their Netflix for pretty much anything. And then there's other people, you know, who would, um, you know, if the re- if, you know if Netflix had been around during the Revolutionary War, they would cast it aside in a second and go and do their duty and uh, fulfill their responsibilities that they have with regards to ensuring that their rights are protected. And we hear again about the importance of the United States Congress. I'll read this to you again. Quote, Our delegates with those of New Hampshire set out a few days ago for the Congress, which meets at Philadelphia. All eyes are turned toward that important assembly. Its decisions will come with great weight. End quote. Interesting. So, you know, we hear this over and over again. A lot of the hope that the colonists had was, was really directed towards the Congress and the assembly there. Now, riddle me this. Do we feel the same today about our general Congress, that is to say the United States Congress, as these people felt about the Congress back in the day? The answer to that question is no, we don't. How do I know that? The approval rating of Congress, typically in the single digits or the low double digits. So, you know, just to put that in perspective for you, these people didn't feel the same about the Congress as we do today. Today, you know, the American people look at the Congress and they think they, they think a lot of things. Most of them are not good. But back in this time frame, things were quite a bit different. People like John Adams and Samuel Adams were looked at as being 
representative of the people in a very positive, positive way as trying to do what they could to uphold the rights of all of the colonists. Of course, unless you're a loyalist, of course, the loyalists to Great Britain, they, they didn't really much think think very highly of the people in the Congress, I'm sure, but they that was not most of the people in the colonies at this particular point in time, as best I can tell. Let us continue on. Quote, We have received the act for vacating the charter and for encouraging, encouraging the soldiery to murder us. The impression they make upon the other colonies as well as this is deep. General Gage has a difficult task. He gives himself wholly up to the high party among us, and acts in the spirit of them that has sent him. He finds the people less dismayed and submissive, and the colonies more united than he expected, end quote. We're talking about General Gage again, the military governor, a.k.a. military dictator of Massachusetts, placed there to overthrow the legitimate government of Massachusetts. And I'm not making that up. Quote, We have received the act for vacating the charter, end quote. That is to say, for basically eliminating the colony charter of Massachusetts. That would be like somebody going into Massachusetts today and eliminating the state constitution and disbanding constituent assemblies. Not a good thing. Oh, and deposing the governor and, and putting in, in his place some kind of a military dictator. To put that in perspective for you, that's what we're talking about. So you have to understand that. A lot of people think, a lot of people don't understand that about the American Revolution. They really don't. And a lot, a lot of folks will, will think that, you know, again, the, the classic arguments about the Founding Fathers, a bunch of rich, elitist people didn't want to pay their taxes, living high on the hog, just wanted to take advantage of everything that they possibly could, blah, 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 blah. No. That's not who these people were, and that's not what they were contending with. These people had a military show up in their city, depose their legitimate government, install a military dictator. No joke. That really happened. Yes, it did. And you wonder why the American Revolution happened, some folks may say. Some people might say, Why, Raymond, why on earth did the colonists think it necessary to take to arms uh, against the British military? Surely that was a fool's errand in their eyes at the top. Yeah, sure. It was a, it was a difficult prospect, it's, but it's not what they wanted. And they only did it when they had absolutely no choice. You know, when the British military came gunning for them. They put up with a lot of crap before it got to that point. They were very patient people. Very deliberative. And the Founding Fathers, I think, sometimes, in certain circles, don't get enough credit for being calm and deliberative. They really don't. In some circles, they do. Uh, the circles that I travel in, they certainly do. Especially if I'm in the room. And for those of you who think I, I make up this sentiment, you know, that the, the British... And, and I doubt it's going to be very many of you at this point. But, you know, new listeners to the podcast might, might listen to a few podcasts and, and hear me say something to the effect of... The British Army was sent out to the countryside to murder the colonists. And you might think I'm, I'm being dramatic or something. Let me read something to you. Quote, We have received the act for vacating the charter and for encouraging the soldiery to murder us. End quote. That comes straight from the letters. It's not me being dramatic. It is what it is. But I like this line later on in that same paragraph. Quote, He finds the people less dismayed and submissive and the colonies more united than he expected. End quote. That is to say, General Gage, the military dictator of Massachusetts. He found the people more united than he expected. He, th he was sent there probably thinking to himself that there was just some small rebel band of lunatics that were out of control. 
that's not the case. The, the colonies, generally speaking, especially in Massachusetts, there's a whole story about Massachusetts, by the way. I'm not going to get into it much right now, but Massachusetts was really the center of freedom and liberty in the colonies. It's no, it's no accident that Samuel Adams was from Massachusetts, and he was the father of the American Revolution. That's not a title that I conveyed upon him. That's a title that other people have conveyed upon him for many years. Is Massachusetts the same today as it was back then? The answer to the question is no, it's not. Not even close. There is a stark contrast between the Massachusetts of today and the Massachusetts of 1774. It's a very, very different place with a very, very different feeling and sentiment. Some people would say that's a good thing. Some people would say that that's a bad thing. I leave it to you to decide one way or the other, but it's definitely not the Massachusetts of Samuel Adams and John Adams. It's just not. And the question is, what happened? What happened to Massachusetts? How did it lose that spirit of Samuel Adams and Abigail Adams and John Adams and those people and William Tudor and people like that? How did it lose that spirit? There's a couple of answers to that question, and I will talk about them at a later date. In the meantime, you can ruminate on that and think to yourself, what in the world happened to the great state of Massachusetts? Something happened. And, you know, it's in that story of what happened, which, again, I'll probably talk about at a later date. I don't know exactly when, but I probably will. It's in that it's in that story that you will learn a lot about the United States of America. A lot. Uh, that's just kind of a clue, for, especially for those folks uh, in, in the international audience, wherever you may be. If you're in Europe or if you're in... Asia, perhaps, you might not know that about Massachusetts, which is one of the reasons why I pointed out. And it might be useful information to you if you're uh, if you're in an international um, situation, that is to say, international to the United States. Uh, some folks in the United States are going to know what I'm talking about, and some folks may not. But uh, certainly the international folks uh, may, may be a little bit in the dark about Massachusetts. And I want to make sure and shine a light on it and and let them know that, you know, Massachusetts was one thing in 1774, and it's a very, very different thing today. So if you go to Massachusetts, if you listen to this podcast and you're international to the United States, and you have this thought, well, yeah, I'll travel to Massachusetts. That seems to be where the, the center of freedom and liberty in the United States, according to these letters. Well, it, it ain't that way anymore. That time period died off quite a long time ago, long before I was born. It is no longer the center of freedom and liberty in the United States of America, and that's sad, but it is what it is. Like I said, some people say that's a good thing. I don't know why, but they would. But General Gage found the colonies more united than he expected. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this division and unity concept a little bit later, but that's a good thing that General Gage found the colonies more united than he thought they were. That tells you that it wasn't just a small rebel band of lunatics in Boston. This was a much bigger issue, and we know that having read the letters from John Adams. I mean, go back and listen to the episode 4,000 Patriots. Those 4,000 Patriots, by the way, didn't just come from Massachusetts entirely. There was already people beginning to muster uh, in places like New Hampshire, Connecticut, under the prospect that there was a, um, a war brewing in a very serious way. It turned out to be a false alarm in that episode. We talk about that in that episode 4,000 Patriots, but you get the idea. This was a big movement of people. People were very concerned about their rights and their liberties all over the colonies, especially in Massachusetts and New England, though. Continuing on, quote, Colonel Hancock is dismissed from his command of the Company of Cadets, and they have resigned their colors to the governor and dissolved. It is impossible to look into fraturity, and to write conjecture may not at present be wise. Boston is not yet deserted, nor the American cause desperate. We are indeed in a most critical situation, and what the grand event may be, heaven only knows. All arts have been employed to terrify, cajole, divide, and mislead us. 
They have had some effect. I wonder they have had no greater. Our rights may perhaps yet be redeemed and prove a means of saving the liberties of Britain, end quote. I tell you, these, these folks sure did have a way with words, didn't they? And, and you notice that in the letters. Almost everybody that we read to a person writes in a most eloquent fashion. Their sentiments are very clear and very, very well worded. I do say. And this was John Hancock, by the way. This line, quote, Colonel Hancock is dismissed from his command of the Company of Cadets, end quote. That's John Hancock. And the cadets they speak of were like a, uh, a company of cadets that were in service to the governor of Massachusetts for, uh, for some particular range of uh, events. But once the, uh, the military dictator of Massachusetts took over, John Hancock was out. He does paint a, a fairly bleak picture here. Quote, We are indeed in a most critical situation, and what the grand event may be, heaven only knows. End quote. So we are indeed in a most critical situation. This is him communicating this to Benjamin Franklin, because Benjamin Franklin, frankly speaking, may not be very directly aware of just how bad it has gotten in the colonies at this point. Now, here's a line I find very interesting. Quote, All arts have been employed to terrify, cajole, divide, and mislead us. End quote. This is what the tyrant does. Obviously, the tyrant wants to terrify. He wants to scare the crap out of you. He will threaten you with everything that you have. He will threaten your employment. He will threaten your business. Or she. Could be a female tyrant. There have been plenty of those throughout history. But he or she will threaten your employment. They will threaten your jobs. They will threaten your security. They will threaten your freedom. They will threaten your property. They will threaten absolutely everything that you have. And they like to do it. They enjoy it. Anytime you see a tyrant make these kinds of threats, you can see the joy on their face. They're happy about it. You'll see, you'll see examples of that around the world today. I'm not making that up. It's not like this stuff ended in 1774. I keep saying that, and for good reason. So we all know that this stuff hasn't ended. It, it just can, it continues on in some places more than others. But you'll, all, you, you'll know a tyrant when you see one. When they start threatening you in this kind of way, like what we're talking about, the blockades, the ceasing of all commerce out of the port of Boston, and so on and so forth, and the, the stifling of the businesses in and around the city of Boston, they enjoy it. And when you see that joy on, your fa on their face as they do it, you know, tyrant. You immediately know that they're a tyrant. It's a clear and present sign. I mean, they might as well, they might as well just be holding up a big sign that says, I'm a tyrant. So pay attention to that. But it also says, you know, quote, terrify, cajole, divide, and mislead us, end quote. Divide. Now, you might think it's counterproductive for the, for the tyrant to want to divide people, but this is actually very useful. A divided people are much, much easier to control. The more that people are at each other's throats, the more easy it is to gain power over them and to control them. Why do you think so many tyrants throughout history have tried to gin up these false conflicts within a society? You remember Germany in the 1930s? What was that? But a, but a means of dividing people, dividing a society, and carving it up, one against the other. We saw this in the Soviet Union. Same kind of thing. It's a kind of divide-and-conquer strategy. It's very, very, very common with tyrants. And you'll see it in societies today. You know, you'll see one class of one class of people and then another class of people that that are set against one another. Whatever that is, I mean, it could be um, could be class warfare. It could be could be other things. And the the tyrant will not try to squash that that kind of divide. He'll actually fan the flames of it and get it go, get those get those embers of hatred burning hotter and hotter and hotter until they explode. That's the whole point. 
Because once they explode, and once once the chaos really starts rolling around, then people demand an end to the chaos, and they will they'll accept any kind of strong man that will end the chaos. And then in comes conveniently the tyrant to uh, to offer a solution to end the chaos, and usually it involves setting up a dictatorship of sorts. Ta-da! There you go. But the division is really intended to cause chaos, and then afford the t- the dictator or the tyrant an opportunity to provide the solution. And if you can get the chaos burning hot enough, ignorant people who are uneducated will gladly give up just about every single freedom they have just to end the chaos. And then the dictator has them exactly where he wants them. Don't let that fool you. If you begin to see this in your country, if you begin to see this in your society, you should re- you should not go along with it at all. The, di- the division and the hatred and all the rest of it. You really need to pay close attention to that because this is a very common way that tyrants and dictators set up shop and begin to fester in your society. Pay very close attention to that. But King George III, he was not exactly what I would describe as an artiste as it, as it, when it pertains to tyranny. He was more of a, uh, a blunt hammer. He wasn't really all about orchestrating an elaborate divide within the colonies to try to control it. He was really all about just sending in the hammer, which which in this case was General Gage, the soldiers, to try to to try to get, gain control of the situation sufficient that he can affect his tyranny over the people of Massachusetts and the colonies. And that's why the soldiers were sent there. However, a more a, a more trained tyrant or dictator might uh, you know, finesse that a little bit, you know, like as I describe it as kind of an artiste of tyranny and and try to uh, manipulate the people a little bit more than King George III did. And then there's this uh, this word at the very end of that line, quote, All arts have been employed to terrify, cajole, divide, and mislead us. End quote. Mislead us. Interesting. Now, how was King George III doing that? How was he trying to mislead these people? Certainly trying to mislead them into thinking that the Parliament had authority over them to the extent of taxation and pretty much everything else. By trying to continually bludgeon the colonists over the head with this concept of, you know, the Parliament, you you may not have direct representation in Parliament, but, you know, the Parliament represents you in some indirect kind of way, thus the Parliament has authority over taxation, etc., etc. Trying to mislead the people and, and redirect them away from what their colony charters originally said and the history of the colony charters and, and their and their various assemblies that they had throughout the colonies, where traditionally they were actually represented in the colonies, not in Parliament in Britain, but in the colonies. Trying to mislead them into believing that the you know those colony charters were really much ado about nothing. Thus the thus his ability to go in and send in a military dictator and dissolve the charter of Massachusetts. The the founding fathers weren't buying that though. They they really did believe in their colony charters and they really did believe that they had these rights. And they in my opinion they were correct. That the, uh, you know, the Founding Fathers had this form of government within the colonies. It involved their various assemblies there where they were represented directly. And as British subjects, they had the right to representation. They had, to, they had a right to have their people in an assembly to pass judgment over whether or not they are taxed or whether they are not taxed. And if the local assembly wants to pass a tax, then so be it. But it has to go through the local assembly, not 3,000 miles away in some parliament where they're not represented. We've talked a lot about that before. The tyrant likes to mislead people. Now, I'm going to say something a little bit controversial again, because it comes to mind. Because I've talked about it before, and every once in a while I like to bring it back up, just so you can remember this and and think about it from time to time. 
I've mentioned previously this word democracy gets thrown around a lot, especially in the United States, that, you know, this is a democracy. You know, we must we must, you know, ensure that democracy wins the day. Democracy, democracy, democracy. I've said it before and I'll say it again. These people who are saying this, most of them, they know that this country is not a democracy. They know it's not. They're not stupid. So why do they keep using that word democracy? If they know it's not a democracy, why do they keep using it? And I have laid the groundwork for why this is not a democracy, if you're curious. If this were a democracy, we would have a direct election for president of the United States instead of an electoral college. We don't have direct election. We don't. If this were a democracy, we would not have a United States Senate. But we do. And I've explained why. And there's other examples of this that we're going to talk about as these as the months and years go on. And not to mention the famous quote from Benjamin Franklin when he was asked, coming out of the Constitutional Convention, what kind of government do we have? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. This is not a democracy. So why do people keep using that word democracy? People who should know, know what they're talking about. I'm talking about people in positions of power and historians who should know better than to use that word to describe this country. Why do those historians and those politicians use that word? I'll give you the answer. Quote, All arts have been employed to terrify, cajole, divide, and mislead us. End quote. That's why. I've alluded to that in the past. They're lying to you. And they're lying to you for a reason. Because rarely do people lie without a good reason. Especially like this. And you have to ask yourself every time you hear that word democracy. And for you folks who are outside the United States, I'll leave it up to you to decide. Is your country a democracy or is it not? I I don't know because I don't know where you're at. And I haven't studied your form of government as extensively as I have studied the form of government inside the United States. So you need to make a decision on that one. Are Are your politicians using this term democracy and are they lying to you? In the United States, I make a very firm case that they absolutely are. Either that or they're dumber than a brick, one of the two. And they have no idea what form of government we have, which I don't believe. I don't believe that for a second. I don't think they're that stupid. So they're lying. And why are they lying? Again, I I believe it's to, quote, mislead us, end quote. That's what I believe. Now, what is that all about at the end of the day? What's the purpose behind it? No, I'm not going to get into all that. That's a little bit too deep for this podcast. I'll leave it up to you to decide. But it, it sticks in my craw. And you might you might have heard in years past, you know, people say that, you know, this isn't democracy. And, and some people think it's just a, you know, it's just words. It doesn't matter. Democracy, republic, what's the difference? No, there's a difference. And there's a reason why we should say always, as Benjamin Franklin said, this is a republic. I mean, even in the Pledge of Allegiance that we say, what does the Pledge of, Le- uh, Pledge of Allegiance say? It says it's a republic, does it not? Yes, it does. We pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, etc., etc., on and on. The republic, not the democracy, the republic. Don't let them lie to you like that and, and believe it. You know, you gotta, you gotta stand out there and point this stuff out. Good news, I believe we have time to cover a letter from Benjamin Franklin. So, let's segue now into a letter from Benjamin Franklin to a Thomas Cushing. Written on, the, written on September the 3rd, 1774. And this letter, while not a direct response to the letter we previously read, obviously, because it's written to a different person, it does reveal the sentiments of a Benjamin Franklin during this period of time, and I quote, It is a long time since I have been favored by a line from you. I suppose you thought me on my return to America, and that your letters would probably not reach me here. But I have been advised by our friends to stay till the result of your Congress should arrive. The coolness, temper, and firmness of the American proceedings— the unanimity of all the colonies in the same sentiments of their rights, and of the injustice offered to Boston, and the patience with which those injuries are at present borne. Without 
the least appearance of submissions, have a good deal surprised and disappointed our enemies, and the tone of public conversations which have been violently against us begins evidently to turn, so that I make no doubt that before the meeting of Parliament it will be as general in our favor, end quote. So Benjamin Franklin is going to stay until the results of the Congress are arrived. That's what he says here. And this is interesting, quote, The unanimity of all the colonies in the same sentiments of their rights, end quote. So he's saying that the, the colonies are united in how they are articulating their rights. This is very timely for this podcast for us to talk about this. I've talked a lot about the Bill of Rights in recent episodes of this podcast, and how the Bill of Rights used to be sacrosanct. That is to say, universally accepted. You don't trample on the Bill of Rights under any circumstances. It is sacred American territory. One could say something similar to the effect of, quote, the unanimity of all the colonies and the same sentiments of their rights, end quote. We used to be of a similar mind to the colonists in 1774. Unanimity in the same sentiments of their rights, as Benjamin Franklin writes here. Like I said, that's been lost as far as the Bill of Rights. There's not a unanimity there anymore. And if we expect... To, make, to keep this republic, as Benjamin Franklin would say, we have to get back to what he's describing here. A unanimity of all the colonies, or in this case the states, and the same sentiments of their rights. We have to get back to that. If you're curious how we get back to that, that's how. Benjamin Franklin has the uh, solution. You know, it's interesting. I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. You know, the Founding Fathers really do have the solutions to all of our problems in the United States today. We just have to go looking for the answer. The answers have been there the entire time, just waiting, waiting for somebody to come along and reveal them. And that's what we do on this podcast together. And in this paragraph, you know, Benjamin Franklin described, you know, the patience and the uh, the lack of uh, submission of the American colonies has been um, a surprise to the enemies of freedom, basically, is what he's describing in here. So patience and a lack of submission. I, I you know, we, we could all take lessons from this today. When the tyrant comes out with his dictates, or her dictates, and the usual threats come along with that. I'm going to threat, they're going to threaten this, and they're going to threaten that, and then they try to divide people. They set one group against the other. Don't put up with that crap. Don't put up with it. And we've seen a lot, we've seen a lot of that in recent times in the world. We have, those of us who are paying attention. And you may know what I'm talking about. And oftentimes, it is the tendency of people to just give in to try to appease the tyrant, because the tyrant's going to go away. If we just make the tyrant happy now, the tyrant will go away. They'll, they'll, run, they'll, they'll run scurrying back into their corner and they'll leave us alone. No, that never happens. Don't think it will. Never, ever going to happen. Tyrant is never satiated. The tyrant is persistent. Just as King George III was. I mean, all of this patience and, and, and the, the, the letters that were sent from the Congress and the responses to King George III trying to get him to see reason, trying to get him to come to some compromise and recognize the rights of the, the, the colonies and recognize their assemblies and their charters. How did that work out? The tyrant basically just told them to go pound sand. And he just kept on doing what the tyrant always does. Really can't work with those people very much. And there's been a lot of tyrants around the world. And there's tyrants around the world today, for crying out loud. Look at North Korea, for crying out loud. I mean, it, we, we see this kind of stuff today around the world. China, North Korea, places like that. And other places, too. Let us continue. Quote, All who know well the state of things here agree that if the non-consumption agreement should become general and be firmly adhered to, this ministry must be ruined, and our friends succeed them from whom we may hope a great constitutional charter to be confirmed by King 
lords, and commons, whereby our liberties shall be recognized and established as the only sure foundation of that union so necessary for our common welfare, end quote. So, he has some hope that, Benjamin Franklin, that is, has some hope that if they engage in some kind of a non-consumption agreement, perhaps non-importation as well, that this will cause the tyrant to knuckle under and call it a day, and the liberties will be recognized, and this will be a great benefit to the Union, as they describe it at the time, the Union in this case being that between the colonies and Great Britain. I, when, obviously, we talk a lot about our Union today in the United States, the Union of States, 50 states in a Union, a uh, very similar kind of thing. And it's very important that the states in that Union remain united, as the colonies were back in 1774. But anyway, he's hoping that his their liberties will be recognized if a firm stance is taken by the colonies. But the colony, the colonists, Benjamin Franklin is clear on this. It's going to take a non-consumption agreement or a non-importation agreement to do that. It's going to take a strong, firm stance. The tyrant isn't just going to give up. He has to be fought with some kind of determination. Not with arms, but with non-consumption, non-importation. These deliberate acts to try to cause him some pain in his economy, in his empire. Perhaps that will cause the king to recognize the liberties of the people. Of course, we know that that didn't happen, because the king was quite determined. He was quite the tyrant. This guy was belligerent. Like I said, he sent in the hammer. He sent in British troops with General Gage, set up a military dictator. This man was not going to back off that horse. He wasn't going to do it. King George III was quite the tyrant. Not the worst, not even close, but he was, he was, pretty, he was a pretty determined tyrant. He didn't really want to recognize the rights of the people. Continuing on, quote, you will see a stronger opposition in our favor at the next meeting of Parliament than appeared in the last. But, I have, but, as, but as I have said in former letters, we should depend chiefly on ourselves. The uncertainty of safe conveyance prevents my being more particular, or adding more at present than I am. With the sincerest esteem and respect, sir, your most obedient, humble servant, Benjamin Franklin, end quote. Interesting. So he has some hope that Parliament is going to reconsider. He ends up being wrong, by the way. If you remember, some of our letters from Mr. Dilly in London, written to John Adams, were very much of the same sentiment. We saw that initially he was very hopeful in, in some of his early letters in 1774, when he was writing to John Adams. But then when we get to 1775, Mr. Dilly, that last letter that we read from Mr. Dilly, uh, under the John Adams letters, he was very much of a different mindset. He was not hopeful much at all. And Benjamin Franklin, too, is going to eventually be very surprised by the belligerence of the Parliament. And these are very instructive words by Benjamin Franklin. Quote, But as I have said in former letters, we should depend chiefly upon ourselves. End quote. Let that be a lesson to you, people of the United States, and frankly speaking, all around the world. If you're relying on your Parliament... To secure your liberties, Benjamin Franklin has some words for you. Quote, But as I have said in former letters, we should depend chiefly upon ourselves. End quote. That's a very important lesson from Mr. Franklin. And some people who are new to the podcast, you know, some people who are very hesitant to, to listen to the podcast over the long term might wonder to themselves, what's the value of reading these letters? What could we possibly learn from 250, in some cases, 200-year-old letters? Right there. It's a very short letter from Mr. Fra Mr. Franklin, and we've already gotten a few lessons from Mr. Franklin about how to conduct ourselves, haven't we? And Mr. Franklin, there's no doubt in anybody's mind. There's no doubt in the minds of the people at the time, and there's no doubt in the minds of people who know what they're talking about today. Dr. Franklin was a brilliant man. He was a terrible family man, by the way. Terrible family man. 
But he was a brilliant man. And when it came to government and the interactions between government and the people, which is a large measure why we do this podcast, Benjamin Franklin was very brilliant. And we begin to see that in this letter because of just how applicable these lessons are, not just to 1774, but to all time. All time. A hundred years ago, 200 years from now, etc. It'll always be useful. So it was. it's great to have Dr. Benjamin Franklin as a guest on the podcast, along with his associate Samuel Cooper today. And with that, I am going to conclude this podcast in the next section. Let's do that right now. All right. Well, we're back into it now, aren't we? Uh, it's good to be back into the letters again. You know, I, uh, I missed doing that, uh, certainly. But uh, as time permits, I will slowly but surely get back into doing that for the podcast. Again, possible schedule changes coming up in the not-too-distant future, and uh, we'll see how that works out. I'm working on a few things. and uh, But the long-form podcasts uh, will we'll be back uh, for, some, uh, for some time. Uh, hopefully that my schedule doesn't get thrown in more chaos to uh, prevent that from being a continuing thing. And we will continue getting some perspective from uh, Dr. Franklin as we uh, segue through 74 and 75 from his perspective and from the perspective of the people around him. Uh, we're going to be getting back into that. And then, of course, once we're done with Benjamin Franklin's letters from this time period, we will move on to somebody else from this time period, probably. And we'll, we'll do a few more people yet from this particular period, 74 to 75. And then we will begin to progress from progress on to um, probably 75 to 76 or 77, one of the two. But I certainly hope you found this particular episode uh, informative and and a little bit different perspective that we're going to begin to get from uh, Benjamin Franklin from London. We haven't gotten a lot of that yet, but um, we we did get a little bit of a a little bit of that uh, perspective on Parliament because Benjamin Franklin was very close to it. We'd gotten that previously from Mr. Edward Dilley, who had written to B- John Adams. So it's going to be a very similar thing, except we're going to get more of it from from Mr. Franklin, and we're probably going to see a little bit more of the evolution of things as they proceed on uh, for, for, from a limited perspective, but we will get a little bit more of that, a little bit more in-depth than we got from the, our former letters from London. But I certainly hope to see you folks on the next episode of this podcast as we uh, begin to return to our normal schedule, hopefully, uh, with, with some changes coming in the not-too-distant future. And with all that said, this is Roman signing out. Thank you. <laughs>